Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Nini's Treats, N-E-N-E-S Treats, ninistreats.com, an amazing family-owned and operated crumb cake business based in Charleston, South Carolina. You can buy their delicious crumb cakes at ninistreats.com or on goldbelly.com. Nini's Treats, you won't leave a crumb. I'm really excited to be here today with Georgia Clark. Georgia is the author of The Bucket List. She's a novelist, screenwriter, and performer. A young adult author of She's with the Band and Parched, as well as an adult novelist of The Regulars, Georgia writes about, quote, feisty, flawed, funny women. She is also the host of Storytelling Night, Generation Women, in which she invites six generations of women to tell stories on a theme. The Regulars is currently being turned into a TV show for E! Georgia has written numerous screenplays, including winning a national film and TV pitching competition in Australia with her show Starts at Sunset. Mm -hmm. Uh, A native Australian and a graduate of the University of Technology in Sydney, Georgia currently lives in Brooklyn with her girlfriend who has a blog called 50 Coffees. Mm -hmm. All right. Welcome, Georgia. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. So your novel, The Bucket List, was fantastic and really dealt with a topic that I haven't seen dealt with so much in fiction before. Mm -hmm. Tell tell readers more about how you came up with the idea of The Bucket List and what it's about. Sure. Uh, The Bucket List is about a 25-year-old woman named Lacey Whitman who lives here in New York City, and she is diagnosed with the BRCA1 gene mutation, which is the breast cancer gene. And that forces a decision, either ongoing surveillance as she sort of waits for the high likelihood of developing breast or ovarian cancer, or the more radical step of a preventative double mastectomy. And to help her make this very difficult decision, she and her close girlfriends create a boob bucket list. All the things she wants to do with and for her beautiful boobies before (laughs) possibly saying ta-ta to the ta-tas for good. (laughs) When I first read what this book was about, I was like, oh, she must have the gene herself. That must be what this book, where this has come from. But in the acknowledgments, you say that actually you don't have the gene. So how did this book come about? So this book came about from a cancer scare of my own. I was in Sydney on press tour for the regulars. And during my sort of routine pap smear, my doctor found a lump in my breast. And so I was scheduled to have an ultrasound on my press day, which was 6 a.m. live television, interviews, a presentation to Simon & Schuster, my book launch of then and the after party. And in between all of that, I had to, without sort of telling anyone, slip off and go and get an ultrasound. And it was the first time I had anything like that happen to me. Of course, I was terrified and, you know, spiraled into the what ifs. What would I do? How would I cope? Where would I live? How could I afford this? Would I survive? And ultimately the lump was benign and but it didn't just disappear. It all stayed with me. And when I came back to New York, I started to think more about what would happen. And I'd had the idea of a bucket list floating around in my head, but a bucket list in and of itself is does not have the you know gravitas to hold a novel. It doesn't have enough weight to it. But to put those two things together in a sort of somewhat unlikely marriage, it started to come alive for me. And that was really the genesis of the book. Huh, so interesting. So what... Did you put on Lacey's bucket list? And what is on your personal boob, <laughs> your personal boob bucket list? Uh, so if you have one. If I have one. Uh, so Lacey's bucket list, when Lacey is uh, 
diagnosed and just sort of realizes that she really might have to think about having a preventative mastectomy at 25 or soon thereafter. She realizes that she has not given her boobs their heyday. She's from a small town and while she's jettisoned herself to New York and has a career in trend forecasting, which is sort of like a career in fashion in a way, and she presents as being quite accomplished and mature and sort of she has her life together, she is not very sexually mature. She has not experienced her body as something that she feels in complete control of. And so her bucket list ends up being a lot of uh, sort of sexual exploitation. So it's in some ways a sexual coming of age. So some of the things on her, some of the things on her list are more um, innocent, like sunbathing topless. We, you know, she hasn't really done a lot of things that that are in any way considered risque, but then some of them are far more risque, sex in public, uh, having a threesome, um, a lot of kind of classic, I suppose, sexual um, exploitations. One of the things I think that sort of ended up on my own bucket list that as a result of sort of writing the book was she has something on her list called wearing a boobs on parade dress, which she describes as being the dress that the women on The Bachelor wear, like a very revealing booby dress. And I don't really dress like that myself, but I did find doing the events for this book, I was drawn to buying and wearing more dresses that showed off more cleavage than I would usually Georgia show off. is wearing overalls <laughs> and, a long, and a turtleneck right now. So I'm just like I'm- a nun, uh, <laughs> a fun nun, but a nun nonetheless. Um, Trying to imagine these risque dresses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were just, I mean, and obviously in the scheme of the world of The Bachelor, these dresses were, you know, grandma dresses. But like, <laughs> I, I still, I went out of my comfort zone a little bit. I was was telling my kids about your book this morning and um, the concept of the boob bucket list, which to my like basically pre-adolescent, you know, 11 year old twins, they were like, what, what, well, what is she going to do with her boobs? And I was like, all right, you know what, let's, let's not even talk about this. Oh my gosh. When we told, I was telling my girlfriend's father about it, he was driving us back from the airport and we nearly got in a car accident. He was just zooming and Liz was like, dad, we were like pulled up short. He's obviously, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a sexy and scintillating concept. When I was reading the book, I was in the playroom. I often read like when the kids are around because they're always generally around. Anyway, so I was reading on the couch and some, there are two particularly graphic three-way sex scenes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like sitting there and my kids are like, you know, like jumping up next to me. And then my babysitter starts walking over. I was like, oh my gosh, don't read these words. Don't let her see. (laughs) Don't this. I'm like blushing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so that you, you go into it. It's Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. how do you, I mean, how do you feel about doing that? Do you get embarrassed writing about it? Do you? No, I really like writing love and sex scenes. I really enjoy seeing what a character does once they tumble into bed together. And I sort of, find it frustrating in some books where you spend so much time connecting emotionally with characters as they are falling for each other, like in a rom-com, and then they finally get into bed together and then there's this like fade to black and we start again the next morning and I just feel like I've just invested so much time with you. Like, I want to know what's going on. And for me, I'm, I'm not sort of prudish and I think it's fun to think and talk and write about sex. It's fun for me as a writer and especially as someone who's in a monogamous relationship, in a way it's a way for my imagination to, you know, have a day out and go for a walk and and try something different without 
you know, leaving the confines of my relationship. And so I think in some ways that's kind of what you offer readers as well. Like it's a, a way to keep your sexual imagination alive in the form of entertainment and also really getting to know a character because I think what we do in bed says so much about us and it's also a great way for humour. I mean, there's so many ways that you can play out sort of funny situations in bed as well. I loved when one of the characters like took a phone call. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness. So you have these sexual type scenes and really fun moments in the book, but you also have these very poignant moments where um, Lacey is struggling with this diagnosis and basically the feeling of just being so alone in it. You know, not first of all, she wasn't telling people, but more just how would she cope? Who should she trust? Who should she talk to? You said, let me find this quote. You said, I've never, this is Lacey talking now. I've never had real depression. That's my sister's territory. But once I've stepped out of my tool and motorcycle boots and washed my face of makeup, I can't fight the wave of emotion chasing me. Tucked into bed, feeling small and vulnerable, I let it drown me, sinking into all the things I've been trying to avoid. No man will find me sexy if I go through with it, but I might die if I don't. I don't want to lose my breasts. I don't want implants inside me. I am scared. I am so, so scared, Mm. which was just so beautiful the way you have her be so open. Did you make this sort of a device for her to be able to share? And did you find that people you talked to who were confronting the same things felt the same way? Or was it more from your scare that you just mentioned? I mean, a little of both. From the research that I did, and I obviously did a lot of research for this book, the moments leading up to the surgery, whether that was a matter of weeks, months, years, extremely fraught. And there's a lot of very hard decisions that have to be made if that's something that you've decided to do. But more so, I had that in common with Lacey. And I think a lot of readers can relate to the difficulty in asking for help when the proverbial hits the fan. Like it's easy to ask for help when it's like a fun favor or a very simple favor, but to ask for help when you really need it because your life is at stake or whether you're going through an illness or a tragedy or anything like that, it's very difficult for some people myself included, to really reach out and ask for help. And I think one of the reasons why, and again, this is something I think I have in common with Lacey, is like Lacey, like I jettisoned myself from Sydney, Australia, I'm Australian, spoiler alert, (laughs) to New York and really built up my life here. I didn't have, you know, friends or a place to live or a relationship or a job or I really didn't have anything. And so this book takes place when Lacey is pretty new to New York. I'm not as new to New York, but at that time when I was... It's a very vulnerable place to be. You don't have a solid support system. You're not really able to fall because there's nothing to catch you. So you don't really have the option of falling apart. And that's the position that Lacey sort of believes that she's in, whether that's true or not is sort of, you know, up for debate. But I wanted to explore what it would be like for a young woman very much sort of carving her life and on the way up to go through this. There's no good time to go through this. It doesn't matter if you're in your 60s or your 20s. It's not any easier at any age. But the specific challenges facing someone in their 20s I thought would be interesting and it is interesting to me and also I can still relate to that time in my life. I went through it. (laughs) 
Not too long ago. Not too long ago, <laughs> right. What were some of the things that you were surprised to find out from all the research you did? And how did you do your research? Like, did you just talk to people in person, interviews, emails, surveys? How did you do it? So I really like to talk to people and I'm not afraid to sort of jump into a community I don't know about. So I connected with a couple of advocacy groups, Force, Facing a Risk of Cancer Empowered and Bright Pink. And through those communities, met people, whether it was through message boards or just cold emailing people, people who had written about it, whether that be at one article online or a book. I did a lot of reading and then I would sort of find contacts in the way that like a journalist finds contacts. And some people are happy just to do like one interview with you and that's it. But some people are really become invested in the whole process because books take years. And I had a few contacts who I just was able to go back to again and again. And, you know, eventually they were reading sections and giving notes and things like that. And I went to events. I sort of researched not just even in Bracca, but in the trend forecasting community. And there's other, I sort of made contacts in that as well and went to conferences. And I mean, I really enjoy research. It's also, it's not writing, so it's a lot easier. (laughs) And that was how the book came to life. I mean, and not just women who had the gene mutation, but also healthcare professionals such as genetic counsellors, plastic surgeons, PCPs, like just everyone that Lacey came into contact with, I wanted to come into contact with. And I guess to your second question, what really surprised me, I guess I'm continually impressed and struck by the resilience and strength of women. I am already, you know, a huge fan of women, I suppose, but I'd never really thought about what it would take to elect to have a preventative surgery for something like your breasts, which are such a marker of the female identity. I mean, they're how we breastfeed children. They're so much a part of our sexual identity. They're such a physical marker of our bodies. And the strength that it takes to decide to remove them, to give yourself a healthier, you know, to remove a risk of cancer. I just was so amazed by that. And it really, when I started first thinking and writing it, like talking about it with my friends, like, oh, I think I'm going to, I'm thinking about writing a book about someone who has a preventive mastectomy. Like some of my friends really found that very confronting and physically recoiled from the topic. And that just made me more interested in writing about it. You know, I'm really interested in writing about the things that we, that it still have a lot of taboos around them, but that are just a reality of our lives. And whether that's like menopause or menstruation, like all of these things that we experience that it's hard to talk about. I think that fiction and particularly fiction that has like a light or a warm touch to it is a really interesting way into that conversation. I'll have to send you the essay I wrote about my hysterectomy. Oh, definitely. Oh, my <laughs> um, gosh. But I think that one of the things that you do really well is just make everyone who's faced anything like this feel understood. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what like makes fiction so great or any kind of writing, really, right? You just unite everyone. Like, who hasn't had a moment where they're worried about some sort of test result or right. had to debate something? Or Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, fiction is a practice of radical empathy on both the writers and the readers, behalf. Like I haven't experienced this myself, but through putting myself into the headspace of someone that hasn't doing the, you know, the research to make it authentic, it's a way in which I can tell a story about something that then gives other people the chance to experience that story in hopefully 
you know, I'm not the sole person writing about this, like to join a larger conversation about women's health and women's lives and choices that we make. And I really take that very seriously. And I really enjoy the experience of getting into other people's heads and Mm -hmm. lives. And through fiction, you know, you can travel the world. You can meet everyone you've ever wanted to meet. You can travel back in time. You can go into the future. It's such a wonderful, wonderful thing. I love what you just said. Writing is a practice of radical empathy. Mm-hmm. If this was an article, that would be my pull quote. <laughs> like in big, in bold. I'll have to put it on Instagram or something. I also really liked in the book how you contrasted Lacey with her sister Mara, mm-hmm. who did have a child and was reluctant at first to get the BRCA1 test, BRCA gene mutation yeah. test to yeah. see if she had. Um, because I feel like that must be common, especially with all these advances in genetics and should you know, do you want to know? What about mm-hmm. if someone in your family doesn't want to know? I particularly liked Mara's comment about Moana and how <laughs> she just wished that Disney had never invented Moana. There was something really funny in there. I should have written it down for you. But anyway, um, do you, did you speak to families or have you, do you have friends who went through this where someone in the family just had a different outlook and it kind of drove a wedge between them? Yes, I've definitely experienced not even even in just this context, but in family dynamics in general, the difference of opinions when it comes to these sort of important questions. And the character of Mara really was a way to activate having someone push back against Lacey because I didn't want it to be Lacey's friends are they go through their own sort of experience with wanting to help her, but there's a lot of very well-intentioned characters in the book, but you can't just have everyone support this person go through this journey. Otherwise, A, it becomes a little didactic and a little Mm -hmm. one-sided, and B, to create some tension. And I felt like I needed a character who was just saying unequivocally to Lacey, you shouldn't do this. I don't, I think this is a mistake. And for that person not to be someone who could be easily dismissed, like there's, you know, a sprinkle of like sexist doctors and so on and so forth, but they're not someone that you would be holding on the page as being like, well, we should really think about what this sexist doctor has to say. But if your sister is saying it, then she really does think about it and have to grapple with how is she going to take this advice and where is she going to push back against this advice. And I wanted someone to say just the basic things that some, you know, the the kind of classic pushbacks, which is like, what if they invent a cure? What if they invent a cure for breast cancer and then you've had your, you know, breast removed? What would you do then? Do you think you're old enough to make this decision on your own? You're only 25. You know, if you get this testing done, then this will run your life. Like this, you know, you won't be making decisions that, that, you know, the test results will. Like things that have a lot of truth to them that Lacey has to really think through and decide where she comes to the table on it. Like what is her take on it? I love that. And what was your process like with this novel? I mean, you said you came up with the idea and explained the genesis of that. How and how did this differ from your other ones? This is your fourth novel? Yes, that's right. Um, I I researched more for this novel, probably more than any other book. Although I did do a lot of research for my second book, which was a sci-fi action adventure thriller set in the future. So I read a lot about robots for a couple of years, but it was the more I've, I write and I've also got a couple of books which weren't published. So every author has a couple of books in the bottom manuscript. The process does get somewhat streamlined. So I researched for two or three months full time. And then I wrote uh, for maybe a year 
to get to a first draft and then it goes through a series of revisions. I work with a really good freelance editor. Her name is Sarah Seifer. If anyone is a fiction writer looking for a great freelance editor to hire, I would definitely recommend her. And so I work with her before it goes in-house and then it goes through, you know, another series of revisions and copy edits and all that kind of thing once it goes in-house. But sort of was like maybe a year and a half from idea to first draft. Awesome. And how did you start writing to begin with? It sounds like you've, you do all different types of writing, not just novels, but screenwriting. And you sold that, the script to the talent contest. And mm-hmm. You've done all these different things. So when did you first know you were a writer and how did your career sort of get kickstarted? It's always sort of like a bit of a, when you look back on it, it's kind of like trying to remember a dream. It's like, how did it all happen? But I went to school for screenwriting and filmmaking. I wanted to be a director when I was at university, aka college. And after that, I worked in magazines. I was an editor of a magazine for a while. I did a lot of freelance writing and I was really trying to break into screenwriting, which was difficult in Australia because the industry is very small and I didn't really know how to do it. I was making a lot of guesses as to how to do something like that. And I would say if you are trying to, you know, do anything, get informed about the actual practice of the industry rather than making a lot of guesses and (laughs) assumptions about it because I think I wouldn't do that the same way again. And I made a couple of short films and when I, I, nothing was really sort of taking off for me in that way. And I came to New York on a vacation with my roommate when I was 27 and fell in love with the city and really felt, had this sort of aha moment of like, this is where I meant to be. So I moved to New York when I was 29 and was going to write a screenplay when I got here, like write a feature film. And sort of within a couple of weeks of moving here, I realized that, oh, everyone in America is writing a screenplay. And I'd already had a young adult novel published in Australia. It was a small sort of short book published. and But that was something that I was one step closer to that in that industry. Like I had the door cracked in that industry, whereas I didn't really have the door open at all in screenwriting. And so I sort of realised that novel writing would scratch the same itch as screenwriting. Like what I liked about screenwriting was bringing a large world in my head out onto paper and being able to dream sort of full time. And I realized that, oh, with novel writing, I don't need a cast and crew. I don't need to raise money from people. You know, there's so much about filmmaking that is practically very difficult. Novel writing, it's not. It's just you and a computer. And that's how I sort of ended up going down that path. And of course, you mentioned the regulars being optioned by E!, and now I'm co-creating, we are option to write a pilot. So which where we just handed in the first draft of the pilot to E, we're waiting for notes, which we've been getting kind of notes on many, the outline and, and parts moving forward. It, there's a lot of, there's a lot more people involved. That's the thing about screenwriting is a lot more people involved with fiction. It's really just you, your editor, your agent. And it's just really those three people for kind of years with screenwriting. There's a producer, producer assistant, the studio, all of the people associated with the studio. We have two studios working on this. And then there's a network and everyone at the network and then your co-writer. So there's like all of these people invested in it, which is different. I like it. Everyone has good ideas and, you know, you sort of take the ideas at work and all that kind of stuff. And it's been funny how I've sort of come full circle over my career now from trying to get into screenwriting in my 20s 
sort of taking a left and becoming a novelist and now maybe I'm getting back into it. (laughs) I hope so. I hope we get on the air. So cross your fingers for me. When do you find out that ad? So when you get a deal, there's different ways you can get a deal done, but we, they just option to the pilot. So they pay us to write the pilot and then there's more decisions that have to be made to get it greenlit to shoot the pilot and then to actually get a series order. So two larger hurdles before it actually gets on the air. Most We're in development right now and most shows in development don't kind of make it on air. Oh, well, yeah. so fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And it's still been a really fun experience writing the, the pilot. So I definitely feel like with that project, I'm winning. Is this your first time having a co-writer on anything? Yeah, it is actually in a, in, in a significant way like this. And I've really enjoyed the process. I think I got lucky. I feel like a lot of people in the industry, their first question is like, ooh, do you like your co-writer? <laughs> because in some ways you're just kind of matched. You, there's not a huge sort of selection process with thousands of people applying and endless meetings and coffees or anything like that. But I, her name, uh, her woman in based in LA called Gail Gilchrist, and she's a really good collaborator. I feel like we have complementary strengths, and she's. I think that it's funny that people assume that whether it's your your editor or your co-writer that you're in conflict with these people and that they're trying to wrestle your vision away from you and that's just really not the case like everyone who is in any way I guess paid or desires to be part of your project like everyone has the same end game which is to make this thing good and to then hopefully get it published or get it on the air or wherever it has to kind of go. So it really is a collaboration. And if you don't like someone's idea, there's generally like a hierarchy of whose who's idea to take. So, and it's, there's not a lot of conflict. There's conflict in other parts of it, but in that part, in my experience, and I'm absolutely a newbie and I'm, maybe there are some people that kind of are working in writer's room who are like, well, get ready. <laughs> just, I, I respect that. Just you wait. Yeah, just you wait. But for right, for right now, my experience is everyone's kind of trying to be on the same team. That's great. And what about the bucket list? Are you hoping to make that into a a movie or a show? I mean, that would be great. I would love that. I am in some kind of early talks with some people, which I can't really say anything about now because I don't want to jinx anything. But hopefully, yeah, we might sort of, we'll see how it goes. Awesome. (laughs) So exciting. Like there's such a big audience for this. It's like... I don't know. I, there isn't a real movie or show that I can think of about this particular someone in this age group with right. this exact thing. And yeah, there is, is sort there? of. I mean, I haven't, there I haven't are, done the research. I have to say. No, so. I mean, there's sort of storylines on television. Uh, there was a storyline on a television show that I that I watched called The Bold Type about a character who was diagnosed with BRCA. I think it was one. I'm not sure if it was one or two. And um, they sort of delve into that a little bit, but this is sort of yet to really reach the mainstream in the way that other sort of, I think, health issues sort of have. And yeah, I think the strength of something like this is it's like you sort of said, it's warm and funny and, and, and sexy and witty, but also is very serious and is able to do both of those things at once. Yeah. Well done. Oh, thank you so much. I tried really hard. (laughs) 
Do you have any advice both to aspiring authors and also to anybody out there now who has this gene mutation and isn't quite sure what to do or who to turn to? Sure. For authors, I think that a regular writing practice is number one. It's really hard to write when, quote unquote, the inspiration strikes or just whenever you find a spare minute because you'll just never find that minute because writing is work and it's not always fun. But if you are able to find a time and make, you know, carve out that time in your calendar, whether it's Saturday mornings or Thursday nights or Friday afternoons, whatever you have available, and really making that a regular practice, your body will, there'll be like a certain muscle memory that kicks in after a month that when you sit down to write, it'll just become easier and easier because your sort of brain and body will commit to that time and realize, oh, it's Friday afternoon. Now I'm, you know, switching off my phone and turning off the internet and shutting the door and sort of doing a deep dive. You have to remove all of your distractions. I use an app called Freedom, which turns off the internet and physically switch the phone off. So that's a great way into it. I also really recommend working with a freelance editor, like I mentioned, or finding a community. And that's sort of my advice as well for anyone who is struggling with any kind of health dilemma is it's really helpful to find a community. It's something that Lacey actually really pushes back against. She's not someone who really sees herself as like joining a cancer club. Like she sort of is a bit of an eye roller about that. But when she eventually does do that, she meets people that really change her attitude and that support her in a very meaningful way. And I think that it's invaluable to connect with others, even if there are people that you would never usually connect with in your life, to realize that you're not alone in whatever you're going through and to be able to talk about it however you can. And sometimes those people are great because they're sort of like a therapist, like they're, they just play a very specific part of your life and, you know, just get the information that you need. I would never advocate that everyone gets tested because it's just a personal choice to make, but I would advocate gathering the knowledge you need to make that choice. Like find out if you have a family history. And if you do, then think about whether getting genetically tested feels right for you. I mean, it can be a big piece of information to find out about, but, you know, the other side of that is you might if you don't have that information, you might get a a shock or a fright by actually developing cancer if you, you know, and if you know about it in advance, it can just empower you with more information. So I think community and and empowering yourself with information are both wonderful things to do. I forgot to ask earlier, I want to know more about your generation women. Oh, yeah, sure. Tell me about that. Thanks. What's that about? Yeah, I host a multi-generational storytelling night here in New York City. We are on Once a Month at Caveat in the Lower East Side, which is a fantastic new downtown theatre. And we invite a woman in her 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s to tell an original story on a theme. And I started the night after conversations with my own mother, Jane, about the experience of disappearing as an older woman the feeling that when she was walking down the street that people were looking right through her and the more I started to think about ageism, especially for women, the, you know, angrier I got and the more I wanted to think about it. So I started this night as a platform for all women's stories, but particularly older women, because we really don't hear enough from older women. And it's a very valuable experience to literally sit around the matriarchal campfire and hear these stories passed down. Some of them are really funny. Some are really moving. You know, you'll laugh, you'll cry at one of our nights. And we've built a really 
strong community around this event. So if you're in New York City, please come and check us out. We're online at generationwomen.us or you can buy tickets through Caveat. We generally sell out a couple a week or so before a show. So get in early and we'd love to see you there and come and say hi to me. I'm coming. Great. <laughs> I'm going to come. I think you should have my grandmother on. Oh. She's 95 and she's the best storyteller. We've actually never had a Team 90s. I'm really excited to book Team 90s, so we should talk. Okay. <laughs> we'll turn off the microphone and uh, make some plans. Great. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And I really love chatting with you. Thank you, CB. Thanks okay. for having me. All right. Thanks, Rich. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been brought to you by Nini's Treats. Nini'sTreats.com, available also on goldbelly.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.